Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, let's try that again. Come on. I was there with you, bro. There we go. Um, all right. Uh, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, and so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as the title uh, tells you, the <laughs> Uh, this passage concerns itself with conflicting comforts. And uh, in a city full of many comforts, it is tempting to get apathetic with walking with Jesus. But Jesus, our Savior, remembers us. And if you, we are willing to open the door to fellowship with him, we will discover God's generosity far outweighs what the world has to offer. And just by way of uh, introduction and to start with, I actually want to share a theory, Jeff kind of alluded to it a couple weeks ago, uh, about these letters to the church. And it was shared with me by one of my professors uh, in my uh, undergrad, and uh, although he was a professor of English, not of the Bible, so that's where it started to get interesting. And he was also known as like the eccentric, kind of loony professor. Uh, and just kind of a brief description, he, had a, he was bald, and then he had a trimmed white beard, and he always wore like a scholarly-looking suit with Birkenstock sandals. And he always carried like a leather briefcase with an umbrella. I don't know why the umbrella. I didn't really understand, but he like, without fail. He kind of reminded me, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, what Indiana Jones' father looked like, Sean Connery. It was actually pretty uh, stark, the resemblance. But, um, uh, but the reason he wore the sandals, uh, this is just why he's eccentric. The reason he wore the sandals is because he believed that barefootedness was associated with the resurrection because he believed that uh, in our, you know, if we're resurrected, we'll have, take on new bodies and we won't need to wear shoes. And it's actually something I think about a lot because Kristen's always telling me how she hates wearing socks and her feet need to be free. And I think about, like, it's because we all long to be barefooted in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> so thanks, Dr. Pilkey. <laughs> um, but that's not even the theory I'm talking about. The theory that he shared with me about the, these letters in the book of Revelation is that uh, the seven letters correspond to seven ages of the church. And so by the time we've gotten to the 20th, 21st century church, we're actually talking about the church of Laodicea and that this is a letter to our era, as it were. And uh, so not that you need that theory to pay attention. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's there. And I think that uh, 
you can draw some pretty decent parallels, even if you don't take the theory as a whole. Uh, the themes of apathy, comfort, and depravity come through loud and clear, and uh, the letter really, I think, deals with our heart issues that a lot of us struggle with today, that I struggle with. And uh, the way the letter is crafted, it gets really kind of messy uh, because there's three essential metaphors that we need to untangle and they all get kind of swept up together. There's about 2,000 years of baggage that goes with them. So uh, the first of these metaphors concerns the church's inertia. Uh, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And uh, these verses are really heavy with significance, and they center around, of all things, just a simple drink of water. Oh, this is lukewarm, yeah, it's not very good. Um, and, you know, there's other times in the Bible that Jesus references a drink of water, and uh, one of them I wanted to share is from Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 34, it says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink of water. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see your sick, you sick or in prison to visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. You did it to me. And this idea of a drink of water as something so simple and mysterious, and yet uh, it is, represents this gospel of deeds, this gospel of what it means to live out the kingdom is to simply give someone a drink of water. And the main thing we realize is that, you know, Jesus is not saying either love me or hate me because I can't stand it when it's in between, like it's a bad breakup song or something. <laughs> uh, he's calling to us to serve, uh, to answer the needs of the world which are many. Uh, Jesus is asking for a refreshing drink of cold water or an invigorating cup of hot water. And the church is giving him this gross, tepid, probably from a rusty tap, in an old, unwashed cup, water. And like, that's better than nothing, but it's still not okay. And uh, the significance of this hot and cold is spelled out, but the idea of usefulness and service to God. And I think we can all easily grasp the utility of hot and cold water to our senses. Uh, when I go into Augie's and order an almond milk latte, they always ask me, do you want that hot or cold? They do not ask me if I would like it lukewarm. <laughs> hot and cold are both good. Uh, this is significant to Laodicea because uh, Jesus is actually speaking directly to something they're very familiar with. They had lukewarm, nasty water. They had a bad aqueduct in the city. And it combined these two springs that were hot and cold, and it came out just kind of gross. Uh, and Jesus is calling to these people of comfort that are in kind of this malaise, and uh, they go about halfway when it comes to effort. This was a very rich city, and they just didn't fix their water. And akin to their water, the Laodiceans were actually known politically for not really standing for anything. 
not having any kind of civic pride. They were kind of the beige, the beige Volvo of, of as far as political uh, energy. You know, they just didn't really care too much about all that stuff. They didn't have any passion. Uh, and Jesus is drawing on those themes to tell us to shake off this culture of inertia and self-interest and propel us into this momentum of actively serving his kingdom. And Jesus pivots from what is wrong with the church to why. And they are inert because they are ignorant. Uh, he goes on to say, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And uh, this is another metaphorical cluster. Uh, what do we do with all this? If we actually took any of this literally, we would probably end up looking like some sort of cult. So we have to be very careful with these, these elements, uh, white garments and gold everywhere, and you know. Um, but Jesus is just trying to turn the church back on itself and show them what's going on, to give them that true sight that comes from God's word. And uh, he's really, again, he's incorporating something they're very familiar with. Laodicea was actually known for three things. It was a rich geopolitical trade hub, uh, very wealthy. It was known for producing this dark black wool, and it was known for having a very uh, good school of medicine there. And they actually focused on, they had developed this salve, this literal salve for the eyes. And they also had stuff for the ears, but Jesus doesn't mention that um, till the end, actually. So Jesus is saying, look, you've got a lot going on, but that doesn't give you any sort of privilege. That doesn't like extend you into a place where you can just sit back and be comfortable. The city, in fact, was so rich that they had an earthquake and the city was destroyed and they rebuilt it themselves without the help of the Roman Empire. They had just become complacent because of wealth and prosperity. But their true spiritual state had nothing to do with that outward experience. Uh, and those words are so harsh. I've read them twice now, and I want to read them again just to hear what Jesus says about this church. He says, You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And it sounds like the inspiration for uh, the poem by... Ginsburg, uh, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, and naked. Those words paint a picture of destitution, uh, absolute dependence and need. They are the opposite of how I think any of us want to feel in society, in the world, and even in ourselves. They describe this state of helplessness, and uh, Jesus is revealing this to them, their woes, so that he can give them hope. He's revealing this promise that he is still there for them. And uh, you know, it ties in these references to gold, wool, and medicine, kind of their, their bread and butter. And uh, this is his way of saying, you know, look around you, look at what you have, and throw off this passionless charade of Laodiceanness, you know, uh, this complacence and comfort, and seek something greater that only Christ has. Uh, you know, Laodicea was a city of leverage, and part of grace is realizing you have no leverage. Seek the Holy Spirit. Seek wholeness. 
seek these spiritual elements that will actually change your life, change who you are. The point is that Jesus will restore this church. He has all the provision necessary uh, to lead them into spiritual richness. And with spiritual richness comes ability. Uh, ability to serve, to help, to provide, to encourage, to come alongside the Savior in the midst of the world. And I think it's far worse to be impassionate than to even be as helpless as Jesus describes the church. He's, it's far worse for them to be ignorant of these things. And Jesus provides the answer to their needs. And then he pivots to the process of faith by declaring his imminence or his nearness to the church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And you know, I pause actually when I read this passage about the door, because I've heard this in a gospel presentation by an evangelist several times. And uh, with Revelation 3, verse 20, uh, you know, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. As kind of the main verse of, and it's always interesting to me because I think that works, like that gets across an idea of what grace is, but that is not what the gospel is coming through this passage. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the church that failed. Um, and this idea of a door, I think, gives us this expression of the gospel in different ways. This might not be the gospel in word of, you know, meeting Jesus for the first time, of seeking the kingdom and, and being answered. And this idea of a door actually gives us some metaphor to play with. So I want to look at a couple other passages about the door. Um, this door in Revelation goes beyond that initial salvation moment. Um, and it represents an opportunity to host Jesus, to welcome him into your house, to give freely of what you have for him. It's the gospel in deeds, the gospel represented as selfless action. You're welcoming him in, not barring him like a, you know, an offensive person or something like that, but uh, it's actually calling believers to come alongside the world that Jesus died to save. And another passage where Jesus mentions the door, that's opening the door to Jesus, is Matthew 7, 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. And there he talks about kind of seeking a relationship with God for the first time, and he calls others. He says, knock, and the door will be open to you. And so there's these kind of two sides of the door that are the whole gospel. That's the gospel and the word of calling someone, of the word of truth, of knowing Jesus and understanding him, and then turning around and, and opening the door with him and serving him. It's, sorry if it's getting complicated. It just, it just really struck me when I saw it, when I read these two passages together. Um, and the door comes up a third time, actually. And I thought, okay, so we're opening the door to Jesus. 
We're knocking on the door, waiting to be let in. And in uh, John 10, verse 9, Jesus actually just says, I am the door. So Jesus is everywhere in our, in our life interaction. Uh, I think it's a good metaphor for today because, you know, everyone has houses with doors on them now. <laughs> uh, that's the gospel in power, that Jesus is the one giving us this safe passage from darkness into light. Uh, he's the one that gives us protection. And just kind of a tidbit on the Gospel of John, John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. And then six chapters later, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a garden that is walled off and has like an entryway. And he and his followers are in the garden. The Roman soldiers come up to the entryway of the garden and they ask for Jesus. And Jesus knows why they're there. They're there to kind of suppress or put down some kind of insurrection or just maim people indiscriminately. And Jesus stands up when he hears his name and he walks into the entryway and stands between the Roman soldiers and his disciples. And Jesus literally becomes the door. The door of power, the door of protection, the door that leads us through this journey of faith from knocking to answering. And this door thing, I don't think I did the best job of explaining it, but uh, is about Jesus being the savior of the church on all sides, saving us from our own ignorance and inertia, empowering us to serve and love, protecting us throughout the whole process. His promise was to never leave or forsake us, to catalyze our spiritual growth, to propel us from Jerusalem to Samaria and Galilee and into the ends of the earth to love and serve others in the name of Christ. And when Jesus talks about this conquering kingdom, he's calling us to attend that conquering kingdom, to join it with him. And he says, only when you've overcome, only when you have joined me in conquering this dark world with the power of love, then you get to sit, then you get to relax, then you get a throne. You are called to struggle so that the power of love can overcome the world's love of power. And verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think ultimately, that's probably the most applicable verse for us, is really to earnestly hear. Hear these words, understand them, soak in them, and, and make the changes that we need to. He's, uh, you know, we're kind of being confronted this morning. There's not, this is the only church, Laodicea, that doesn't get any kudos. They don't get any pats on the head. They're just bad. And it's hard to hear that. Uh, and, you know, we try to, I think we, we try to get all of that in for the year on Good Friday uh, last year. And, um, but that's what we're facing today. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's not all, you know, poop stains. There's uh, this promise. There's this promise that Jesus himself, even when Jesus himself is shut out of the church, he doesn't give up. Many of us have probably felt wounded by the church. Uh, and he is compassionate for our brokenness, for our needs. And he doesn't give up on, on any one of us or any of the struggles that we have. 
And he's provided this, this higher calling to get out of this cultural inertia and break free. And uh, as we shift from this to a time of communion, a time of the Eucharist, I just have one final thought that I want to share. Uh, that Jesus waits eagerly for something as simple as a cup of water from us. But he has already offered us so much more. And the difference between what we offer and what we're called to offer and what Jesus offers is the difference between water and wine. And Jesus really offers us kind of this beautiful cup of wine. And uh, Jeff, you want to come up? Uh, we don't do this every time we have communion, but I kind of wanted to just experience this a little more. So I went ahead and we got some real vino <laughs> to go along with the juice. And uh, Jeff will explain, give some instructions in a little bit. But I was just thinking of the difference between the two cups. The cup of water that Jesus is asking for and that the church wasn't even able to provide him. And the cup of wine that he gives us. And the thing about wine in the communion ritual and the origin of where it comes from and everything, I just think is so beautiful. So I just, I just want to experience it with wine so we can kind of get a taste of, of what Jesus was talking about and then go back, you know, the juice is a fine symbol. That's great. But wine is earthy and potent. Uh, it is transcendently popular. Uh, valued among the rich and poor alike, uh, comes from hard work. Uh, just the blood, sweat, and tears of tradesmen goes into creating these, these vintages. And uh, when Christ lifts up the cup, when Christ lifts up the cup, he's pointing to something tangible, but not just tangible. He's engaging with something that's palpable, something that people relish the taste of. And I just don't always relish the taste of grape juice. But wine is just timeless and irrevocable. And uh, Christ's cup of wine that he gives us is life. And uh, we come to communion table like we're coming to a marriage feast. Uh, both receiving this offering of Christ's body and blood to satisfy us, but also welcoming his presence, joining at a shared table, and uh, understanding this life that he is offering us in more ways than one. And at this table, there are no words, uh, but the words of Christ. When uh, the night he died, he took the bread, and he, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. Get that one. Yeah, there we go. He took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And when we hear these words, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let us welcome again the Savior who has done all this for us and welcomed us. 
Madison Street Church over the years. Practice the form of communion called intention. That was the word they told me in seminary. Uh, what it really means is grip, rip, and dip. Uh, and that will be our method yet again this morning, uh, but with uh, two cups, uh, both which will be passed around. And if you prefer to take your bread and dip it in the grape juice, you're free to do that. If you'd rather wait and dip